The following sermon was delivered on September 20th, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Sure Foundation on 1 Timothy 1, 1 1-4. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. Now may the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from his word. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14. And our New Testament reading will be 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. If you've got a, um, um, one of the paperback Bibles, it's 163 on the light cover one and 574 on the blue color one. Just please stand for the reading of God's word and reverence to the one whose word it is. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who sanctifies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. And then First Timothy, the first chapter, the first 11 verses. Apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, Stay on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good 
if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you as we have gathered this afternoon that we come into your presence, that you promised to meet with us. It's our request now that the Spirit who inspired these words would illumine our understanding. Enable us to commune with you. But above all, grant that these words be preached in his holy power. Would your anointing be both upon the one who proclaims and all who listen. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. May be seated. I don't know if you young people or boys and girls have ever had the experience of your family going on a really long trip. Now, I'm not talking about the weekend at Grandma's house. I'm talking not just about a week's vacation, but let's say you go on a month's trip away from home. Think of what all would have to be done if you're going to go on a month away from home. Somebody has to take care of pets if you have pets. Somebody has to water plants if you have plants. You've got to just make all these different arrangements to watch over things in your absence. That's similar to what Paul is doing in this letter to Timothy. In fact, both the Timothy letters and the letter to Titus, we call them pastoral epistles. He and all the apostles are about to go on a long trip. They're about to go to heaven. And what Paul is doing here is giving the church uh, the manual of operation. We Presbyterian calls the Book of Church Order in these three pastoral epistles. He takes what was descriptive in the book of Acts and in the epistles, not all of which is for this age, and tells us what is prescriptive for this age in which we live between the death of the apostles and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can imagine that what we have here is very fruitful for the church then in our age. And the reason that I'm starting this series in 1 Timothy is there's really no better book for a church as it begins to study and understand how God would have us to live. But this book is for the church and how the church should behave. In fact, he gives a purpose statement in end of chapter 3, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. How one ought to conduct himself, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God, the church of the living God. And the book of Timothy is as you know, this is quite remarkable. It deals with proper teaching and exposes false teaching, as we have here in the very first chapter. It deals with how the church should worship God and the roles of men and women in the church. 
It deals with the uh, office bearers of the church, their qualifications and their functions. It deals with how we should pursue teaching. It deals with church government. It deals with many of the practical uh, details of church life. So that's why uh, we're coming here to see how the church should be structured, to see how we should be living together as we begin this church, and how we're to be governed, and why we worship the way we do, and how he would have us to select men to be elders and deacons, and many practical other details that we have here. Paul wrote this book probably around 63 A.D., uh, to Timothy, as we read, whom he had stationed in Ephesus in order to deal uh, with problems there, yes, that he mentions in the first chapter, but also merely to continue to build and structure the church. So in these first four verses tonight, and if you've got the bulletin, you've got that proposition statement, that's the sermon in a nutshell, and that is that the, uh, the church must be structured according to the Bible, which is God's word through which he will provide for and protect his church. The church must be structured by the Bible, which is God's word through which God will provide for and protect the church. So we're going to continue. We're going to consider four things about this letter to Timothy. It is a divine message. It is a timeless message. It is a gracious message. And it is a protective or practical message as well. Look at verse 1, and we see there that it is indeed a divine message. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. In all but four of his letters, Paul identifies himself in this way as an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostles were the special ambassadors, the special emissaries of the Savior. The eleven, not counting Judas, Matthias, who was chosen by the church, and Paul in particular, the thirteenth apostle, all have been witnesses of the resurrected Savior and were entrusted by him. That's why he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, entrusted by Christ Jesus now to be one of those building stones by which Christ would build his church. So Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles are the foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are such by the scriptures that they've given to us by inspiration. But I want you to notice how Paul so carefully aligns his authority by adding these two phrases. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus who is our hope. He says that he's been commissioned by God. Now when you read the Bible and you've got uh, the name God, which can be used of all three members of the Godhead, but you have one of the other persons mentioned and it's a reference to God the Father. So understand he's talking here about God the Father. The God the Father has commissioned him eternally has appointed Paul what was active in the calling of Paul to himself through the calling of the gospel and appointing him to this ministry. But look at the precious name that he uses for God. God who is our Savior. Now, we're well aware of that name, and the Old Testament often refers to God the Father as the Savior of his people. But rarely in the New Testament 
is the title Savior given to God the Father. Uh, it's most often coupled with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Father is our Savior, the Holy Spirit is our Savior, Christ is our Savior, we know that to be true, but Paul's making a point here, and he's, I think in particular he's making the point that the God identified with the Old Covenant Church, the God who was the Savior of the Old Covenant Church, is now the God of the nations. And so one of the things that will run throughout Timothy, a thing for them that our hearts will beat with here, is that God is seeking the lost. He's desiring for all kinds of men from all over the world to come to faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, who is Savior. And then look at this great name for our Lord, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Now I'm going to come back to the names of Christ in a few moments. But notice here that Christ and God the Father are coupled together under one heading. He does it twice in these four verses. And it simply is a very subtle, not so subtle way of teaching us that uh, our God is the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So God the Son is put on level here with God the Father in the commissioning of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to camp a bit longer on these two titles. Did you notice the intimacy of the title? God, our Savior. Christ, our hope. God is the Savior. Christ is the hope in that he has secured and guaranteed all that God promises. Our hope is not, I hope that I can, um, that we don't have rain tomorrow. Okay? We don't know. I hope we don't. Right down, going home last night from being out here, there's a, there's a church that's got a little sign that's so encouraging. Have hope. Have hope. What in the world does that mean? No. I have hope because I have Christ. Christ is hope. Christ is the sure and certain guarantee, guarantor. Paul says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in me is the guarantor that I have eternal life now and will live with the triune God and brothers and sisters forever. But it's God our Savior. Christ Jesus, our hope. You see the intimacy of that. And I want you to ask himself the question this afternoon or herself. Can you say that? Are you comfortable thinking of God personally as your Savior? Or do you have any confidence that God is your Savior? That Christ is your hope? Or does your conscience even this afternoon bear testimony to you that I don't think I can say those words? Because to you, God is not Savior. God is judge. To you, Christ is not Savior. He is the judge who's coming again. And God is a God of wrath. He says the soul that sins must die. Is that where you are this afternoon? Are you still under this judgment of death and condemnation? But would you not love to be able to say, God, my Savior? Christ, my hope? That's the gospel. That's what it's all about. That's the message of good news that we hear by God's grace will proclaim week after week. But if you repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God shall save you. And you will know that God is your Savior. You will know that Christ is your hope. And there's no more precious confidence than knowing God is Savior. Christ is hope. So as Paul begins this way, addressing his apostleship, how do I get to the fact this is a divine message? Well, I've already alluded to the fact that the apostles then were, as the ambassadors of Christ, were his penmen. Christ didn't write a word. 
But he promised the apostles in John 14 and 15 that he would, by the Holy Spirit, bring all things to remembrance and lead and guide them in the things that they wrote. They wrote by what we call inspiration of the Spirit. So what Peter says uh, about Paul, about inspiration, is what we say about Paul. Notice, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, you don't look at things, oh, I think I'll write this about that. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what an apostle was. He was one moved by the Holy Spirit. They knew they were writing Scripture. And they wrote them with a certainty that the words that they selected were guided by the Holy Spirit and they gave us the Scripture. So Peter, later in that same chapter in 1 Peter, uh, uh, same book, 1 Peter 3, uh, says that puts Paul's writings in the category of Scripture. So the, Paul the Apostle is telling us that what we have here is a book inspired by the Holy Spirit. A book that is without error in all that it teaches. A book that is going to be the foundation of the lives of each one of you here this afternoon and the foundation of every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, all the Bible, the 66 books, are God's divine, infallible message. Well, next we see it's a timely message. Notice the first half of verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, in one sense, what we have here is a personal letter. And we see the great affection Paul has for Timothy. Why then this emphasis on authority? I mean, it's clear from these words that Timothy was Paul's closest friend and ally. He calls him true son or child in the faith. First time that Paul went through the Galatia area of Lystra and Derby, Timothy, with his mother and grandmother, who already believed and served the true God, when they heard of Christ Jesus as the Messiah, embraced him by faith as well. When Paul returned to that area a few years later on his second missionary trip, the elders in the church pointed Timothy out. Here's a man who believes called the ministry, and we want you to take him with you on the journeys. So Timothy came to the knowledge of Christ through Paul's ministry. Paul loved him as a father spiritually, poured himself into Timothy, and Timothy would do anything for Paul. Timothy was probably a timid man. He was a fearful man. Some of you can identify with that, perhaps. That's the reason for the authority. Um, he had a big job in front of him, you see. Immediately, Paul calls on him to address the false teachers in the church at Ephesus, as well as to continue organizing that church in the way that the church should be organized. So Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm coming to you with God's authority. This letter is your message from God to strengthen you in the task that is before you. But there's another reason for the authority here. This is where we get to the timeliness of the message. The letter is addressed to Timothy, admittedly. But what's it all about? Is it about Timothy? There might be a few passing remarks about stomach ailments and stuff like that. No, the letter's all about the church, isn't it? It's how the church should function. It's what the church should do, what the church should believe, what officers the church should have. 
The letters for the church, in fact, I can imagine that as Timothy opens the letter there, here's the people looking over his shoulder. Read the letter. Uh, perhaps it's be like your father had been away on a trip, mission field or military, and a letter comes to the family, and all the children have gathered around the table. Why don't we want to hear it? We want to hear it. And so the letter is read aloud. But Paul's letters were read aloud in worship because they were scripture. And the church heard the letters in that way, saw how they were for them. But the, the concluding proof of this, that it was a letter for the church and not just for Timothy, is the very last words in chapter 6, which you wouldn't get this in the English, but it's this little benediction. Grace be with you. And here Paul uses the second person plural pronoun. Grace be with you all. And thus, he's writing to the church. He's conscious of that. Timothy's conscious of that. And the church was conscious of that. Thus, the kindness of this message, this inspired word, was given to the church. What Paul says in this word, the church is the pillar and support of truth. It's given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's given to us as God's people. It's given to every congregation of God's people. It's God's sure, certain, infallible word. Thus, as we learn in our standard, it's to be our only rule of faith and practice. So I can pledge to you, let's say we've got five of the six elders here this afternoon, there'll be nothing done in this church that contradicts the Word of God. Our single-minded concern and commitment is what says the Lord. And we'll never teach, by God's grace, anything contrary to the Word of God. And you can bank on it. But it's also true for you as an individual. This is God's word to the church. That means it's God's word to you. You need to read it that way. You need to commune with God in his word and hear what God has to say to you through his word. And you youngsters, you develop that habit. As soon as you can read, you start reading the Bible and seeking to know God through his word. Because this is a timely word. It'll never grow old or stale. The God who does not change has given us a word that is, in fact, unchanging. So it's a divine message. It is a timely message. And it's a gracious message. Look at the second half of verse 2. And we're trying to jump over these things. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me jump over first place because every one of Paul's letters has it. We jump over because, well, we know it's simply the traditional way of writing letters back when Paul wrote his letters. But Paul takes something that was traditional and shapes it by the grace of God. These apostolic salutations are full of the hope and grace of the gospel. Notice the three things that Paul pronounces here. The first, he says, grace. Grace takes us back to the attribute of God, that he is the gracious God who uh, inclines to show favor to guilty sinners and to provide for them a way to escape. But grace is much more than that. Grace is that by which God comes to us when he regenerates us and gives us faith. Grace is what happens then when the Spirit of Christ indwells us and brings us into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace is every single thing that Christ has purchased for you. Everything. There's a great reservoir of grace. It's just his work, not saints. It's Christ's work. And when Paul says grace to you, he says that let, let, let the trial God give you 
every day what you need to live the Christian life. That's why we talk about the means of grace. These are the things that Christ, the King of the Church, communicates to us for our spiritual well-being so that we grow in what? Grace and godliness. And we put to death sin. Now, the second term here, mercy, is only used by Paul in the two letters to Timothy. And I've already alluded to why. Timothy was a weak man. And Second Timothy, uh, he's, he's fearful. All this, Paul's now in, in prison a second time. Uh, he wrote this letter in between his prison engagements uh, in Rome. Uh, and Timothy's fearful. What better word for a timid man to hear than mercy? The difference between mercy and grace is, is mercy is God's work in alleviating the consequences of sin in the world and in our lives. In the Old Testament, the Greek translation, uh, mercy is used for the most wonderful word, loving kindness. Covenant love. Great love of God. It's one of the reasons we read Psalm 103. For here we see that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. So mindful, so tender and compassionate. And then the third thing that Paul pronounces here is peace. Again, this is in all of his salutations. Uh, this peace is, begins with the objective peace we have with God because in Christ Jesus, God reconciled to us. He turned away His wrath. He, he received us then for Christ's sake. He would not only pardon our sins and constitute us legally righteous, but He would adopt us into His family, make us sons and daughters. But with that comes in this subjective peace of which Paul will write in, in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace. A settled con uh, conscience. Our catechism defines it uh, uh, as assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, uh, increase in grace and perseverance therein to the end. That's the peace of God. In, in the Hebrew word, it is wholeness and completeness. And that's what God is doing for us in Christ. It's making us whole and complete. Now, notice the fountain of this salutation. Again, joined together, the Father and the Son, from God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord. Now God the Savior is pictured us as the Father who has this tender compassion for us, who is pouring out upon us all of these things. But as I said, they were purchased by your Savior. Now we have the full panoply of the names of Christ. Paul changes the order from other writers. He focuses much more on the title, then the name, and then that divine name. So he says, from Christ. Now, again, when you come across the names of God in the Bible, you tend to do what I call and play biblical hopscotch. Well, I know those names. You just jump over them. You pay no attention to them. Well, if, if all this is given by inspiration, you need to understand that there's no useless word, particularly the names and titles of God. Stop. I could say, slow down, you move too fast. Stop. Look and listen. Stop. What's God saying? Christ is the fountain. And that name takes us back to his office. That he is God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. 
He's the one who, while he was on earth, and now as he's in heaven, is dispensing grace to us by teaching us by his spirit and word, by uh, leading us in the ways that we should go. And he's our priest. Having made that sacrifice for us, he now is praying for us in heaven. And he's our king. He's king of the church, but he's king of us as well, each of his subjects. And it's this Christ who has fully accomplished everything necessary for grace, mercy, and peace. He could do that because he's Jesus. And remember, that's his personal name. But it's the name of the incarnate Son of God. We should call his name, the one conceived by the Virgin, Jesus, because Emmanuel. God with us. The name means Jehovah saves. And it's his personal name that reminds us always that your Savior is all that you need because he has a true human nature just like yours without sin. And he's divine. He's divine. And that's summed up then. We move to his full deity. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now he is the one who's purchased grace, mercy, and peace. Notice again how they're coupled together under one preposition from the Father and the Son. But there's one more thing here. This is not simply a declaration. It's not a prayer. This actually is the apostolic salutation by which God, when it is pronounced by the lawfully ordained man, communicates those things to those who receive it by faith. Christ laid the foundation for this uh, back in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent out the 12 and he said, as you enter the house, give it your blessing. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If it's not worthy, peace is to return to you. When that apostolic blessing is given, all those who are in Christ and have faith, it is heaped upon them. And if one is not in Christ, it simply returns them to the Lord. But this is why we now include this in worship. And why we also have a benediction in worship, which is the same thing. It's not a prayer. It's a, it's a declaration. And when you hear the salutation, and when you hear the benediction, yeah, I want you to think about God abundantly raining upon you everything you need for the week ahead. One of the reasons we refer to worship as a means of grace. It starts right here with this gracious salutation given to us by the triune God. Well, there's one more thing. We've seen that it is a divine message, a timely message, a uh, gracious message. And it's a protective, a practical message as well. Uh, verses 3 and 4. If you look at them. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. You to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. I already mentioned that Paul got out of his first imprisonment. Um, none of the witnesses showed up from... Uh, uh, Jerusalem to testify against him at that point. Uh, there was no, um, um, Nero wasn't really bad yet. He didn't have great problems on his plate. And so Paul went free. He went free. Some think he went on to Spain as he intended, but he definitely returned uh, to uh, Macedonia. 
and he seems to be in Macedonia now, about 63 AD, and Timothy is now in Ephesus, and here's the very first thing that Timothy has to do. This is why he needs mercy and grace. He's got to deal with uh, some false teachers. Notice it's an indefinite. There's not a lot of them at this point, but they were an ornery group, and they'd risen up in the midst of the congregation, even as Paul had warned them in Acts chapter 20 that would happen. So he says that uh, you've got to instruct these certain ones not to teach strange doctrines. The word used here is the word heterodox. They were teaching doctrines that would be contrary to what we'll look at in a couple of weeks, what Paul would refer to as sound doctrine, sound words. These were unsound, erroneous words. And he describes in part the false doctrine here in verse 4. They were paying attention to myths and endless genealogies. Seems that what they were doing, they followed the practice of some first century Jews. You can see this, for example, in the book of Jubilee. Well, I guess you've tried to read genealogies, and they're just not that exciting. And so what did these folks do? Well, they took the names out of genealogies and invented stories about them. So, for example, Canaan. Well, Canaan was uh, an astrologer. And that's why he had uh, the curse of God in his life. Uh, and so it was all myth and speculation, uh, just weaving tales out of the word of God. What does that lead to? Well, Paul says negatively, it leads to mere speculation rather than what we should have, and that is the administration of God, which is by faith. These endless genealogies, these stories spun from Scripture. Everybody can have his own story. And we can sit around in a circle and share our stories. And, you know, mine's better than yours. You know, I just, I really, I got insight here. And then we get frictions and all of these things from this endless speculation that's going on. But the purpose, and we'll come back to this in, in two weeks, in verse 5, is furthering the administration of God, which is the stewardship of God entrusted the teacher of the church for the furtherance of the faith of the believers. It is for their edification, as the King James will translate this, in this context of faith. Now, there are some errors that are soul damning. Paul addressed one of those in Galatians. But I think the Spirit would have you note here, there's also errors that are very soul-damaging. I think it was J.I. Packer who wrote that uh, uh, many of the things that are going on today in the church, not necessarily condemn one to hell, but greatly damage their Christian life and their sanctification. These speculations and false doctrines and man's theories of the church do nothing to further God's work of sanctification in God's people. And that's why we must be aware of them. We come right back to where we began. We come back to the Scriptures as the Word of God. Everything must be based upon the Word of God. And that's why our policy here is in most of the churches represented here this afternoon is to preach through the Word of God. Primarily go book by book, verse by verse, to understand the mind of the Holy Spirit. But it's the Word of God that will protect us from error. And I might just mention, as you young people learn catechism, it's one of the best ways to know how the Word of God will protect you from error. Because this is the summary of the truth of God's holy word. And so, my friends, I've sought to show you the church must be structured 
by the Bible, which is God's word through which he will provide for and protect his church. We've seen that it is indeed a divine word. Thank God for a divine word. A sure and certain foundation on which we can build all of life. And thus it's timely. It never will outgrow its usefulness. But always the Spirit will use it in your lives to teach you and lead you and rebuke you. And it is a gracious word. Yes, in corporate worship, God gives us these things, but he gives them to us as we commune with him in private and family worship as well. And thus you will be protected. Protected from the error that will do you great damage and help you to grow in truth. Well, this is, by God's grace, what we're about. This is what we want to do here at Old Antioch Presbyterian Church. Many of you have come tonight to support us in this open endeavor, and I know that you'll be praying for us that these things will be true. But for each of you as well, may these be the truths of God that grip you, maybe more than ever. For this is a timely, divine, gracious word by which God will protect you, by which he will cause you to grow in grace and confidence. Let's pray. Oh, holy God, we thank you for your word, which you've given to us, Lord, this great word, this true and, and word that has no error in it, but speaks to us of all that we should do and what we should believe. We thank you how you use your word in the church as you've used it in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you will give this church uh, grace always to build upon your word. Oh, and that we might see many come to know Christ, the glorious hope, the one who enables God to be our Savior. So bless us, Lord. Apply these things to us, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.